I want to remind you guys, and we're going to be reminding you throughout the day, that we do have a picnic baptism this afternoon. We're going to be baptizing several of you guys, so get out there. Uh, carpool, it's going to be a lot of people out there, and bring a lawn chair, all that type of stuff. Today we're going to be wrapping up our series called Transformed. We've been walking through the book of Acts since the very beginning, the very first weekend of this year. And we have made it all the way through it. We've covered most every chapter, I believe, and we've made it all the way to chapter 28. If you've been following along, you will know that Paul has found himself again and again since chapter 21, basically facing false accusations, having to stand up in front of different groups of people, Sanhedrin, a mob, a, you know, governors and kings, and now he's appealed to go to Rome. And so on his way to Rome in verse 14, it says, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. So we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard us, heard about us, they came from as far as the forum of Apius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and he took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And so when Paul gets to Rome, he's able to live in his own place. I mean, so the soldier is as much there to guard Paul as it is to keep, you know, some people think that Paul's under such tight security that he can't, no, but he could have people come, he could have people go. Uh, remember, there was a group of people who had a pact out to, you know, death warrant for Paul. And so the guard was there probably as much to protect Paul to get him to trial as anything. But as I was reading all the way through the end chapter here this last week, I was reminded of all the times throughout the book of Acts and throughout Paul's story. And I was just struck by all the times when Paul was strengthened by his friends. I mean, we see it right here where people started to come from far and near and people were coming to strengthen Paul. And so just a little, a little overview of that, I'm reminded of Acts chapter 9 when Paul, you know, Saul becomes Paul and Ananias comes. Remember the story of Ananias and Ananias had to take great courage to come to Paul and to, to pray over him because Paul's reputation at that time was just murderer and terrorist from Ananias' perspective. And so he was strengthened by a guy named Ananias. And then not too long after that, there was a guy named Barnabas whose, whose name literally means son of encouragement who put his arm around Paul and vouched for him when no one else would. And he gave him, he lended his own credibility. And so Paul became a great partner with Barnabas throughout the years. And you go over to Acts 13, and Paul and Barnabas are prayed over and sent out by their brothers and friends, and they are launched out into their ministry and with great strength after that prayer time and blessing. And then Acts 14, on one of the missionary journeys, Paul is stoned, somehow survives, and he comes back, and we find at the end of the chapter he's strengthened by the brothers and his friends. Acts 15 is the famous Jerusalem council where they didn't know what to do. And so Paul joins the others where they come to this council and this group of brothers and friends for wisdom. They seek wise counsel. Acts chapter 16, you know, after Paul and Silas had been in prison, remember this, and the doors of the jail was broken off at midnight as they were singing. Well, Acts chapter 16, Timothy joins Paul and Silas, and Timothy becomes a lifelong friend and a protege of Paul and becomes a great strength and a son in the faith to him. Acts chapter 18, we go and these people, Priscilla and Aquila, they become great partners in the ministry, strengthened supporters of his. Uh, in Acts chapter 21, remember as Paul is getting 
ready to leave and to go uh, uh, to the next place, his friends have to literally be torn away from him because they are weeping and the, the connection that they have is so strong that he almost couldn't get away from them. Go skip over several chapters, Acts chapter 27. He's on his way to Rome and as he's going along his journey, the, the centurion actually lets him go off and to meet with some of his friends along the way. This is kind of unheard of, especially as someone who's under guard to be able to do that. Acts chapter 27, again, uh, as he goes on this ill-fated ship that we talked about last week that crashed and ran aground and all 276 lives were saved, but the ship was lost. Guess who was on the ship with him? One of his friends, Aristarchus, and a guy we know of as Dr. Luke, because Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And I skipped over so many instances where Paul was strengthened by his friends. And then we come to the end here, and even at the end, he's surrounded by friends. I think we tend to think of friendship as kind of an add-on accessory to our Christian walk. I think we think of friendship as something that's nice, but optional. For Paul, it, was, it just doesn't seem like it was optional. It seemed like it was absolutely necessary. Can I just tell you that you were not designed to live life disconnected? You are not designed to live life outside of community. You see, in our individualistic society today, you guys know the routine. Many of us, we go and we get in our car, which lives inside of our house. So we don't even have to get outside and breathe the air or maybe possibly be seen by our neighbors, right? We get in our car, in the garage, garage door goes up, we go out, we park, we go into, some of us maybe, depending on your work, you go into your cubicle, you go into your station, you go into your whatever, and you kind of, a lot of days, just hope to be left alone. That's just what a lot of us are. I mean, it's just kind of how we drift. And to be on our own, to do our own thing, to not be told what to do, not to be overmanaged or whatever. And then we'll come back and we'll, do, we'll go back and we'll reverse it. We'll go back into the car, into the garage, and then we'll come back to a screen, right? And then we'll, any interaction that we have with people is mainly through a screen. You are not designed to live that way. I could bore you with all sorts of studies that tell you that the more we're, we're living alone like that and the more that we only contact people through a screen that the studies say we, we, get, we get less healthy rather than more healthy. Because God designed us to be in the same room, dare I say, breathing the same air. <laughs> he designed us to be in the same room together. I mean, there's something in the Bible called the laying on of hands. What that simply means is when you pray for somebody, that there's an actual contact that's being made. Because God designed us not to be alone. And so let me just give you just a small little theology of friendship. Because sometimes, again, I think we think that it's just an add-on. It's just an accessory. It's nice when it happens, but it's not something I have to have as part of my life. And I would just put it this way. God is a community. Have you ever thought about that? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We call this the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. God himself is a community. And God designed us to be a community, like even within ourselves, body, soul, spirit. But God designed us, God as community, wants to come and to be in community with us. He's a father that created a family, but then he also created us to be in community with one another. And so God's a community, 
He wants to be in community with us so that we also would be in community with one another. This is how important this is. And so you were designed for community. Now, let me ask you just a question. What was the first problem that was ever solved in all of humanity? I want you to think about this. To do this, the very first problem in all of humanity that was ever solved, we have to go back to the garden. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, God starts to create. And he, say, he creates something and he says it's good. You may remember the Hebrew word for good? Tov, you got it. Tov is the Hebrew word for good. And so over and over again throughout Genesis chapter 1, God creates something and he says it's tov. Create something, it's tov. Create something, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then you know we get to this point where God says something is not good. For the first time, we have a problem. And what is it? Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, and I will make a helper fit for him. Now what we tend to automatically gravitate towards in this scripture is assuming this exclusively has to do with marriage. While it does have to do with marriage, in the broader sense, that is not the first problem that was actually being solved here. What what I'm saying is this, that the first problem that was solved in all of humanity was not singleness. It was loneliness. This was at the heart of the first problem in all of humanity. It was not singleness. It was actually loneliness. Because you know that you can be by yourself even in a marriage. So marriage doesn't solve the first problem. Marriage doesn't solve the loneliness problem. It can help, and it's a good thing. But the first problem was loneliness. But you don't have to raise your hand, especially if your spouse is right beside you, but have you ever felt by yourself in a marriage? For sure. You know, you can feel by yourself in a family. You can feel by yourself in a church. Because, by the way, you were not designed to be a part of a church in such a way that you come in, and here we go, and just come in, and then you sit down, and you watch the announcements, and then you leave during the last song, right? I I said it last week, but in the days to come, surface-level Christianity will not cut it. You have to be connected in a deeper way. And, And so... The first problem to be solved in all humanity was not singleness, it was loneliness. Because you can be surrounded by people. You can be in a crowd and still be by yourself. And marriage and family are great, but you still need friends even as an adult. You still need friends. It's still beyond that. And and the reason I say this is it's so important for God, this idea of friendship that we always set aside as optional. This idea of real deep friendship, fellowship, koinonia, As you get into Scripture, the idea of friendship is so important to God that God not only has a bride, but he also has friends. You see, we as the church are the bride of Christ. That's the analogy used in Ephesians chapter 5. But it's so important that God doesn't just set this friendship idea as an optional add-on. God not only has a bride, but he also has friends. Look at this in James chapter 2, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. How many of you guys would like to be called the friend of God? Well, I've got news for you. You are. 
You are. Look at this in John chapter 15, verse 15. He says this to all of us. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. He's talking to his disciples, but he's also talking to you and me down through the ages. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Now, this even gets even more interesting. If you back up two scriptures in John chapter 15, verse 13, it says, greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. Do you see what Jesus just did there? He tied in friendship, this idea of friendship, to the work of the cross. He says, this idea of friendship is so important that it's tied into even what I did on the cross and possibly, we can, we can expand out a little bit that his motivation was that there are friends that he's dying for. So this is not an optional thing as much as we would think it is because this is so important with God. And so throughout the last week or so, I started pulling different friends and asking questions. Hey, what are some barriers to friendship? And uh, what, what are some things that have helped you out in, in your friendships in your life? And so I was with my real life group uh, a couple weeks, or I don't know, last week. And so we, we talked about, you know, what we do together. We share a meal. We, we talk about the past sermons. But I, I threw this out a little bit in advance so they get a sneak peek. And I just said, what do you guys think about friendship? And so my real life group is sitting around. It's a group of my friends. And they came up with three words inst almost instantly uh, on friendship. And I, I thought, well, what better way to write a sermon on friendship than to let some of my friends help write the sermon? And so they came up with these three words almost instantly. And the three words that are going to be our three focuses today are time, testing, and trust. Because one of the biggest barriers and the biggest comments that kept coming up in, in the barrier to real friendship, I mean, many, many people said time. Time was a barrier, and it is a barrier to friendship, but it's also a necessary ingredient to friendship. You have to have time in order to have real friendship. And so I've shared this illustration, but I think it's so important and fascinating when you think about it and how necessary it is. So here's an illustration about time. Let's watch. All right, I've shared this illustration with you guys before, but I think it's so important because it's so valuable to see it this way. And I was just sharing this with my kids the other night. But have you ever wondered why the older that you get, it seems like time moves faster? In some ways, it does. In some ways, time moves faster for me than it even does for my kids. And here's how it works. Let me just give you this illustration. Let's just say this is the life of a four-year-old. So we're going to divide this four-year-old's life up into four years. Each one of these represents a year. So we're going to mark that there. One, two, three, four. From this four-year-old's perspective, each one of these years is a huge percentage of their life. I mean, for one year to go by, that's, that's a quarter, that's 25% of all their known existence of time. But the older you get, the more slices of the pie there begins to be. 
And so by the time you get to my age, there's 45 slices of the pie. There's 45 years. And so each year that passes in my life, the percentage of that piece of pie slice actually does get smaller. And so from my perspective, the percentage of each year that takes up my life is actually smaller than the one before. And I think that's one of the ways that time seems like, like you can have a year just fly by because your perception of that year gets shorter and shorter every single year that passes. And so this is why it's so important to recognize time because as time seems to move faster, the older we get, then what happens is it's easy for us to just skip over whole seasons of life. Now imagine that this is like not years of your life, but maybe like a day or a week, maybe there's seven pieces here. And imagine how intentional you have to be about investing, like what percentage of your life gets invested in each one of these things. It's so important. And especially when you want to have friends. I think it was the University of Kansas that did a study years ago, and they said it takes something like 50 hours to go from being an acquaintance with somebody to being a casual friend. And those 50 hours aren't like work hours. They are like leisure, relaxed, downtime, be yourself type time. And they said it takes another like 200 hours to go to become a close friend. And again, those are like intentional investment of time. And so you have to invest time if you want to have quality friendships. I mean, even the last couple of weeks, I was thinking about this, that Becca and I had three days, three evenings set aside just in the last couple of weeks, just for friendships. That's not for our family night. That's not our ministry stuff. That's not any of those other things, but just an intentional investment for friendships. Brady Boyd says one of my favorite quotes, and he says, it takes a long time to become old friends. Another guy that I like and I listen to, Daniel Grothy, he says it this way. He says, I'm suspicious of people whose closest friends are always their newest friends. Let me say that again. I'm suspicious of people whose closest friends are always their newest friends. Why? It says something that they're not able to weather the tests of time, to be able to forgive, to grow, to love, to stay, because it takes a long time to become old friends. It takes an investment of time. And a lot of us, we don't have a lot of close friends or we're in the process of always trying to make them because we're not willing to put in the time. We're not willing to weather the storms we're not willing to do that. And I think some of that is because sometimes we want friends that only make us feel better rather than make us better. And if all you do is look for friends who make you feel better, eventually they're not going to make you feel better. And so then you're going to have to find some new friends to, that make you feel better. But listen, if you want to have deep, rich friendships, you, you need some people who are going to surround you and make you better. And that takes some maturity, and it takes our second word, which is the word testing. And so to tackle this word of testing, I'm going to have a different perspective. So uh, my wife Becca is coming on up, and then Pastor Aaron's wife Sarah is coming on up. Would you give them a big hand as they come up and share from their perspective? Hey, guys. Hey. Hey, Sarah. Hi, you. So Sarah and I have actually been friends for 29 years now. Uh, we met when we were teenagers. 
So we were friends during that awkward teenage phase, and then we have pretty much been solid, steady friends through all those and seasons of life. And you can make it through the awkward stages. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now we're both grandmothers. So um, we've been through some things together. We've been through some testing. And so we just wanted to share a few thoughts with you. Uh, testing is awkward. Testing is hard. Testing is difficult. A lot of people run from testing. And I think that's why I love that quote so much, is that if your closest friends or your newest friends, that tells me you're running from testing. You're running from the hard conversations. You're running from doing the inner work that you need to do to become closer to that friend. And so I just wanted to share, uh, Sarah actually reminded me of, um, I was telling her some advice I shared with my kids when they've come up to me and they've had trouble with their friends. And I got to where I told them, I was like, okay, look, you have two options. You can forgive it or you can fix it, but you can't do neither, right? You can't just say, well, I'm not gonna talk to them but I am gonna sit and think and rehearse about what they did. I am gonna sit and be angry and bitter. And I was like, no, you don't have that option. That's not one of your options. You have to do one or the other to help grow this friendship. And so forgive it. So in Proverbs 19.11, it says, good sense makes someone slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And so some things just need to be forgiven and forgotten right? Some things just aren't that big of a deal. You know, if I were to be blunt, I would say, stop being so sensitive, you know? Stop taking offense so easily. Just sit down, pray, and, and be like, is this really something that really needs to be um, worked on, that really needs to be dealt with? So um, Colossians 3, if you could put that scripture up, it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We both, it's funny, while we were preparing this, we, we were trying to think of a scripture, and we both thought of this same scripture. And we're like, oh, we have to, obviously, we have to use this one. But um, so anyway, as we're talking, I want you to be looking at the scripture and look at those descriptives. Look at those adjectives that are used. That, that's the key to having good, solid friends is to approach anything, whether it's inner work in you first or a conversation with a friend with those descriptives. So like I said, some things just need to be forgiven and forgotten. But sometimes you do need to sit down and you need to have that hard conversation with somebody. Um, and I think that the first step before you do that is to do some inner work. Sarah? Yeah, and so the question is, how do you fix a friendship that is being tested? Great news. I mean, not only, I'm sure all of you can testify to some of this too, but after 29 years, can you imagine, I mean, some of you can, the ups and downs that come with a friendship? Um, whether it's your kids you argue about, or I mean, it could be deep surface stuff. Um, it's endless, right? Um, but one thing, you know, I kept thinking about was, you know, Jesus has to be that foundation. If you really want to succeed and have victory in those testing times. And if he's not, ask for help, get counsel, find somebody who you have seen run that race well and get some tools to help you. Um, but another thing is we both have to have a goal that is similar, and it has to be about reconciliation and restoration. We both have to want that in a testing, um, and so you have to be aware of that. 
Um, another thing is, um, you know, going back to the inward. Um, I have to examine my heart, like Becca shared earlier. It's not about waiting for Becca and telling her all her problems in the testing. It's about me looking at myself with the Father in that secret place and really saying, God, where's my heart? Where's my mindset? Is it for her? Is it for our friendship? Or is it against her? Because it might be me some more time, like Pastor Sean talked about, where I'm going to really need to examine my heart for maybe a longer time before we can have that conversation. But it's important, too, to remember that God and the Holy Spirit are the ones that are doing the hard work and that they are going to repair your heart. I mean, but it is our part to obey and trust God and act. But that act part is on us. It's not on, it's, mine isn't on Becca in that testing time. I've got to trust God, and I've got to go to the Word. I've got to love and have compassion for her, but that a lot of times doesn't come in the middle of a heated conversation. I want to approach her in a testing time with a heart that is soft. Go back to the sermons that we've heard over this last uh, chap these chapters of Acts. We have to have a soft heart. Yeah, so Sean preached a sermon a while back where he talked about handling conflict. And he talked about how before you sit down with that person, you need to have already forgiven them before you talk to them. So that you are entering that conversation with, with a, a meek heart, with a humble heart. You're not coming to them just waiting for them to say something so that, okay, well, now I forgive you. No, no, no. You have already forgiven. And you've already fixed whatever you need to fix in your heart so that your attitude is not, I want to show you how right I am, but it's, we're going to talk together. We're going to figure out how to reconcile. Like Sarah said, it should always be reconciliation. And testing is good, you guys. You know, it's good. It's the, the closest friends I have are the ones that have been tested, that have gone through testing with me. Why? Because I can trust them. You know, I can trust Sarah that if I'm a little bit ugly or have a bad day, she's still going to be there. If I do something that hurts her, she's going to talk to me about it, and she's going to do it in a right way. So it, testing builds trust. I love these three points because it's like time. You talk about time and that kind of slides into testing. You talk about testing and that just slides into trust. And so don't be afraid of the testing. If you want those deep friendships, it's gonna be tested and that's okay. Because the good thing is that even if you do all that inner work and you talk with your friend and even if that friend doesn't accept it, even if that friend pushes you away, you still win because you've done that inner work, right? And so it's not, it's not, you still win something, even if you lose the friendship, because you're still handling it the right way. So our last point is trust, and we're going to actually kick it off to Sean on a video. All right, so time, testing, and the third thing is trust. I'm out here at Stocksdale Park, where Sunday at 5 p.m., we're going to be gathering, we're going to be having a picnic, we're going to have a baptism, we're going to have games and fun, and there's going to be a ton of people out here and we need you to be here. So make plans on being here. But I have this feeling, this hunch that some of you have already decided not to be here. And the reason I say that is because it's not because there's a conflict in your schedule or some sort of external conflict, but possibly because there's an internal conflict. Because every single one of us have in the past put ourselves out there before as we talk about this area of relationships and friendships, and we've had our trust broken. 
And many, many times that's happened. It's happened to me years ago. I got to this place where I'd had that happen so many times that I just found myself paranoid of every single relationship was going to somehow break my trust or hurt me in some way. And so I just began to put up walls and I began to guard uh, myself in that unhealthy way. And God revealed to me, he's like, Sean, you can't pastor people that way. You, you have to have thick skin, but you have to have a soft heart. And the truth is we can't live that way either. We, we have to have a soft heart. You know, the, the gospel doesn't command us just to be the doormat for everybody to walk on, but it does uh, invite us to have an open heart. In fact, if you look at, at 1 John chapter 4, let's see if I can get my Bible open here in the wind. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not, or whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he, he has not seen. And so the, we're not to be everybody's doormat, but we are supposed to have an open heart towards other people. And the reality is, is that you have something that someone else needs. And if you don't give that, they're missing something. And maybe you need to be reminded of this as well, but there are other people that have something that you need as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14 says, for, if the body, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. We're not individuals or ind independent in the kingdom of God. If the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And so you have something that someone else needs and someone else has something that you need. And if you don't show up, something is missing. And I'm inviting you, gently inviting you just to step out once again, to put our trust back in there, to open up our heart and to be a part of relationships in a healthy way. And to, to once again, to open up our heart and just see what God can do. All right. So this is the hard part though, isn't it? To trust again. It's the hard part. It really is a hard part. But we can do it with the help of Jesus. So we're going to come in for a close here. And it's really kind of sad for me to come in for a close and to read the last two scriptures of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28. It's been quite a, a, a journey, no pun intended. But Acts chapter 28, verse 30 and 31. Let's wrap this up. He, that's Paul, he lived there two whole years at his own expense. So he had his own rented house and he welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so Luke concludes this, kind of a cliffhanger. You know, you don't know what's next. There's a lot of things that uh, some people think there was a fourth missionary journey and have evidence for that and stuff. We know it doesn't end here for Paul, but what we do know is that, that he was able to be in a house, to be able to welcome people to come and go, and he was proclaiming the kingdom of God to anybody who would come and anybody who would listen. Something interesting happened during those two years. One day, 
this guy comes, and he must have heard Paul speak and preach about the kingdom of God. And he listens to him, and, and he, after a while, he came to the conclusion that what Paul had to say was right. And so this guy gives his life to Jesus. But as he's talking with Paul, he says to Paul, he's like, but Paul, I've got a problem. And Paul says, well, what's the problem? He says, well, I'm in a little bit of a legal situation here. I've got some legal problems. And Paul says, well, okay, tell me what's going on. He says, well, I was a slave and I ran away. See, and in that day, there's a lot I could say about slavery in that day compared to what we think of as, you know, colonial slavery, 1500s, 16s, 17s, 18s in America and all the horrors that went with that. And while that was certainly a part of it, there were also different types of slavery. I'm not going to have time to get into that. Nonetheless, they were... They were not good, even though they were variations. But this guy says, I I ran away. And, of course, one of his punishments is that he could be punished by death for running away. And so Paul's like, okay, well, uh, tell me your story. What's your situation? So this guy ran away. Where where better place to go than to find a big city just to disappear in, right? So he goes into Rome just to disappear into the population. Well, he, He wasn't expecting on hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and getting saved. And so Paul says, well, tell me your story. And he's like, well, I'm from, you probably don't even know this town, but I'm from this little town of Colossae. And Paul's like, I know there. I know that town. And he's like, well, tell me more. And he's like, well, uh, the guy, the house that I ran away from was this guy's house, and his name is Philemon. And Paul says, I know Philemon. In fact, there's a church that meets in his house. And so Paul says, what's your name? And he says, my name is Onesimus. And Paul says, all right, hang on just a second. You, you go away and come back some other time. I'm going to give you something. And so Onesimus went away. We don't know how long, a day or two. I don't know how long it was. And he comes back, and Paul has a letter for Onesimus. And he says, I want you to take this back to Philemon, back in Colossae. And you imagine what this must have been like for for Onesimus, because to go back. And he says, no, just trust me, just take this letter. And, you know, we have the letter that Paul wrote. It's right here in your Bible. It's the book of Philemon. And so I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to read just some of it, because what we see in here is one of the products that happen through deep, deep friendship. Because not only you have time, you have testing, but trust has to be built. And if trust is to be built and actually engaged in, then that means when you trust each other, there are going to be things that you can say to one another that reveal blind spots that you have in your life. And you need other people, trusted people in the kingdom of God, who are going to speak into your life and to speak into spots that you cannot see that are problem spots. And even though Philemon is actually hosting a church in his house and one of the leaders of the church in his house, he had a major blind spot. And so what we see in the letter of Philemon is Paul writes a letter during the two years as he's at Rome, and he sends it off with Onesimus, and here's what we find in the letter as Paul begins to talk to his friend, Philemon. And he says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. It's only 25 verses. It's just a very small, small letter. Paul, a prisoner of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, he's reminding him, hey, I'm over here. You know, i got some problems going on over here. But he says, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, Skip on down to verse 4, and he says, I thank my God always as when I remember you in my prayers. And I'm sure Philemon's reading this and is like, oh, that's really nice of Paul. You know, he's, we're, we're good friends. 
He says, because I hear of your love and the faith that you have towards Jesus and for all the saints. And he goes on and on and on. In the first little section here, he, he talks about, you know, you're my brother because, you know, I'm, I'm just thankful because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And Philemon's feeling pretty good about himself so far as Paul's writing to him. And then he goes on in verse 8 and he says, Accordingly, though, like I, I do have something to bring up. And I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do this and to do what is required. Yet, for love's sake, I, I prefer to appeal to you. It's like we're friends. And I want to, out of love, just make this appeal to you. And he says, I'm an old man now. I'm a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and I appeal, for you, or appeal to you for my child, and your translation may say son, my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And then he goes on, and he says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and me. And what's interesting is Onesimus' name actually means useful. And so Paul's doing a little play on words there, and he was saying that, yeah, he was kind of useless to you, wasn't he? But I want you to see how in the future he's been very, very useful to me and how he will be useful to you only in a different way. He says, I'm sending, you, sending him back to you, and he says this. He goes, I'm sending my very heart. This is, this is rubbing up against everything that Philemon has thought about, probably, about Onesimus and about how life works. And the way Paul is talking about this as a friend to him, he said, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be out of compulsion. He's like, I'm not going to make you do something. I just want you to see something so that you could do it out of your own accord and, and maybe this, and he goes on, he says, maybe this is why he left in the first place was so that he could meet Jesus, he could meet me, and so that this change could happen in your life and in his life. And he says, so that you might have him back forever, but not as a slave, more than a slave, as a brother, especially, he says, beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you when you could see him now as a brother both in the flesh and in the Lord. See, he's exposing a major blind spot that Philemon has. And in some ways, it's not Philemon's fault because it's just the culture of the day. It was not something that anybody was, was maybe bringing to his attention. And he goes on and he says, so if you consider me your partner, if you consider me a friend, he says, receive him as you would receive me. And if, if he wronged you at all, just put it on my tab. Put it on my account. If he owes you anything, I'll, I'll pay the price. I'll take care of it. And he says, and he goes on, and he's, it's right here in the Bible. Like, if you've never read this before, it's like, he's like, I'll put, put it on my tab if he's done you anything, anything wrong, and I'll repay it. I mean, by the way, I mean, I'm not even going to mention that you kind of owe me your whole life, you know, the whole gospel thing, and I preach it to you. But he goes on, and he says, Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. But at the same time, prepare a guest room for me because I might be coming just to check up on you. And he goes on at the end. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends his greeting to you. And so does Mark. And then 
Remember one of those friends that were on the ship with him, Aristarchus? Ah, there's Aristarchus right over here in the book of Philemon. Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. Paul was surrounded by friends. We all have blind spots. And it was Paul's relationship through time, testing, and trust that built such a deep relationship that Paul didn't have to command his friend Philemon, even though he was in a a position where he could have possibly done that, but he approached him from the deep trust of a friend. And because they had had time testing and now this deep trust, Paul could speak some very, very difficult revelatory things into Philemon's blind spot that he could not see in such a way with gentleness and love that I believe Philemon could receive it. We all need to have friends like that and to be friends like that. So worship team, you guys can come back because we're running out of time, but every single one of us here have blind spots in our life. Why? We, you, I don't have a blind You can't see it. It's a blind spot. It's, you can't see it. So we need people. We need our spouse. We need our family. We need church leaders. We need sermons. We need the Bible. We need all of these things to speak into our blind spot, and we certainly need trusted friends to be able to speak into our life in ways that others maybe can't. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17 says, iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. And so if you think, if you've had this thought about you, God alone is all that I need. Maybe my family, God alone and my family, that's all that I need. I would challenge you, find that scripture. You will struggle to find that scripture in context that says God alone is all that I need. Because God alone is not all that you need. Certainly God is your source. Certainly God is your savior. Certainly God is your Lord. But also certainly God designed you so that you would be in community with him. But man, look throughout all scripture. He also designed you so that you would be in community with one another. And we don't, we don't get to rewrite the script. God made us for community. And in fact, the first problem was that we were alone. And so God designed us to be a family. He designed us to be a family. And you can have friends in your family. I've got some of my best friends are in my family. But also some of my great friends are right in this room as well. So last week, again, I said service level Christianity isn't going to cut it. You, I, I'm, I'm imploring you in the days ahead, the idea of attending church and going home and then living by podcasts and books for popular authors is not how the church was designed. I say that out of genuine love for you. We were designed to be in the room together. Whatever that is for you, take the next step. Maybe it's forgive. Maybe it's step into it a little bit more. Maybe it's try again. Maybe it's trust again. Oh man, I know it's hard. I'm not saying this from a place of, of lacking experience. I know it's hard. But take, it, take the next step. Invite somebody over for dinner. Get in a real life group. 
Gather a group of friends and go have coffee on a regular basis. Whatever it is for you. And some of you guys, maybe you've been really lonely. And so you're like, I've tried to invite people. And what, I'm assuming a little bit of maturity here that if you ask somebody and they say no, you don't know their situation, try again. Try in a different situation. Try in a new place. Oh, I tried five years. Try again. Inevitably, what happens after a message like this is I get a lot of invites out to dinner. And as much as I love food, I'm not looking for that, okay? So, because we only, we all only have a, 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 a certain amount of time, right? And so as much as I'd love to be with everybody, it's, it's in the set-apartness that makes it special. It's the fact that you can't be with everybody equally that makes your unique friendships carry weight. And so you need to find those that carry weight with you. And so take that next step. Be the friend that, be the type of friend that you wish you had to somebody. You know, there's somebody who needs that kind of friend that you wish you had, and you could be the answer to their prayer. And through the power of the Holy Spirit and the strength that God supplies, we can do that for somebody else. We can. And so would you stand up with me? Because I want to pray for every person here who you have experienced loneliness. Maybe in deep, deep ways in this season. Would you open up your heart just enough right now to receive this prayer of healing? Come on, can we open up to God in this moment that's saturated in the Spirit of God and the Word of God? And if that's you, just receive this right now. God, I pray for every person here who's been walking in this season, this by themselves season. They've experienced loneliness at a deep, deep level. Lord, first of all, I pray for your presence to come in a fresh new way. Holy Spirit, I, I pray for boldness to rise up in them, to have the courage to step out again. Father, I pray that you would do what you say that you do, that you're in the business of healing broken hearts. Lord, I pray for every person who's tried and tried and tried and it just seems like every door is closed. God, would you give them hope again? Would you place that hope again where the hope has been extinguished? Right now, just place a spark of hope again. That in the kingdom of God, maybe what has, they've experienced in the past, maybe that's not the way it has to be in the future. Place that in them right now in the name of Jesus, I pray. God, I pray for your presence to be so near right now as we respond in worship in Jesus' name. Amen.